Welcome, Inside Rockstars, to a new episode, Better Brand Insights by Jenny Romaniuk. Welcome, Jenny. Hi. So let me introduce Jenny real quick for those of you who don't know her. Jenny is research professor and associate director of the Ehrenberg Bus Institute at the University of Source Australia and author of Building Distinctive Brand Assets and How Brands Grow Part 2. Jenny's research covers brand equity, mental availability, brand health metrics, advertising effectiveness, distinctive assets, word of mouth, and the role of loyalty and growth. She is the developer of the distinctive asset grid, which is used by companies around the world to assess the strengths and strategic potential of their brand's distinctive assets. She's also a pioneer in mental availability measurement and metrics. Here we go. So, Jenny, you are co-authored uh, first How Brands Grow, part two, and then Building Distinctive Assets. And now you are publishing a new book called Brand Better Brand Health. Could you guide us through your personal publishing journey and explain why you decided now to write this book? Well, this one was the hard one. Actually, the research that goes into this book, some of it was some of the early research I did where we've redone it to check that it still holds and it's up to date. But actually, that's you know where I started was looking at brand health. I managed a few brand health trackers. So I was involved in design, analysis, reporting. And it was partly the deficiencies in that that spurred my research into mental availability, category entry points, and um, distinctive brand assets because I noticed these were glaring emissions. Yeah, so so that sort of took me off on a bit of a side journey while I explored those. And then, uh, you know, it came time when after I finished the revision of How Brands Grow Part 2, I sort of went, I think this is time I do have to actually sit down and write this because I'd had lots of conversations with people constantly telling me how much they didn't like their brand health tracker. Yeah, so much so it was a bit of a, you know, just people didn't like, they didn't trust it. They thought it was boring, too long. It was too hard to find anything. You know, all of these big problems with it. And that got me worried that people would give up on them altogether when it's a really important measurement instrument when it's done right, because it really is the only way we get to see what's going on in people's brains. So this is what this book is about, is, is how do we do this better? Knowing we'll never be perfect. Because whenever you're asking, drawing on people's memories in survey situations, there's always going to be error associated with that. But let's get it as good as we can and let's let's focus on the things that are really important now that we know how brands grow. So, so yeah, so this, this book was the hardest to write, so I kind of left it after the other one. So warmed up with the other ones and then this one comes in. So basically you step down from the strategic level towards practical level saying hey how do we do it now right how do we research well, it's actually got it's actually got both in there and that was part of the challenge of it so part of it is about what should we be tracking and why if we're setting up our brands to grow so if you're relying on these kpis to either you know, tell whether or not you'll get a bonus this year or in order to give yourself an indication you're on the right track to growth, you still need to know you've got the right metrics in there, even if you're not designing the questionnaire and, and things like that. But it is also for the people who are on the ground designing questionnaires, collecting data, designing sampling frames to actually help them not make bad decisions 
because unfortunately sometimes people make decisions they think are good but don't understand the full consequences of what they're doing. And so this book is about unpacking some of those consequences so we can avoid them and do better in the future. So it actually tries to straddle both, which is, you know, always a bit of a risk. You try to do two things, there's a danger you do neither well, but I just thought it was really, really, really important to try. Sounds interesting. So before we dive into more detail on the topic, maybe we cover the basics. So what exactly do you mean with brand health and and what is it that companies need to manage yeah well i it, i call use the term brand health because that's what common parlance is and what people are referring to i actually in the book call it a category by memory tracker because that's really what it is i mean we extrapolate the health of our brand from it but actually what we're tracking is how category by memories are so that's how i prefer to refer to it because that's actually what we're doing here. And yeah, it is about understanding the thoughts and feelings that people have about brands in a category and how they utilize those when they're in buying situations. And have we, through our marketing activity, laid the foundation such that we give our brand the best possible chance next time someone's going in to buy? So when I'm hearing brand health tracker and category buyer memory tracker, right? Mm -hmm. What I'm hearing from these words is that the latter more uh, looks at the whole competitive landscape, while the brand tells tracker more focus on your own brand. Is this one of those differences? Sort of. And that's part of the problem with brand health trackers. If you think of it from a brand lens, is you bias it to your brand and how it is now. So I'm trying to get people to rethink that and look at it from a category perspective. So one of the things I start out with is, you know, put forward a mantra for people to think about when they're thinking about brand health. And that is design for the category, analyze for the buyer, report for the brand. And so that means if you design for the category, you design something that anyone in the category can use that's unbiased, that captures essentially a category lens. Analyze for the buyer recognizes the biggest difference in pretty much every brand health metric is whether someone has had past experience with your brand or not. If they're a current buyer or they're not a current buyer. And so sometimes we need to we need to split those out or treat them in different ways so that we're not mixing them together and not seeing key changes. And report for the brand recognizes that bigger metrics you set for big brands are different than the metrics you set for small brands. So if we try to mix those together, what we risk is big brands get basically fat and lazy because they always look good. They always score higher. And small brands get dejected and stop things that could be working because they never quite get up to the level of a big brand because they don't have the user base to do it. Yeah. So that's sort of the underlying philosophy I'm trying to put forward in how we design the trackers. Jenny, what I always wanted to hear from you is where is the link and the difference to customer experience management? You are an expert in loyalty, right? And companies are running also big trackers, NPS surveys and all of that to measure customer loyalty and also reasons to drive customer loyalty. And is there a connection? And where, where's the connection? Where's the difference to that? What do you, what do you think? Well, if you're, if you're measuring um, experiences, so, you know, you go into a store, you have an experience with the sales staff and you want to know how was that experience, those are better done 
timed according to when the experience happened. Because we've actually done research in it that on this. And if you say take customer satisfaction and you or service quality and you measure it of a group of people who experience the service interaction at different points in time, they have systematic differences in how they rate that are due to the time lapse, not the actual event. So I think if you're going to measure customer experience and actual interactions, do that as they're happening. So a fixed thing where it's, you know, 24 hours afterwards, some standard timing you think is appropriate and do that. That's not what we're doing with a brand health tracker or a category by memory tracker. With a category by memory tracker, what we're doing is gauging what are the long-term changes we've made in buyers' memories. And so how do they then feed into the future? So to me, I think they're very different because one is aiming for a long-term measurement and the other is aiming for an event measurement. You had an event, I want to know how that event went. And they need to have different styles of data collection, different metrics and different assessments because of that. Good point. In the customer experience trackers, they they differentiate between touch point uh, measurement, which is what you what you uh, refer to, and then they also do this general. So they just reach out to their customers, which never ha had a touch point the year. Eventually, yeah, if we think of insurance, and to me, it it's yeah, it feels like very close to brand tracking actually. Quite possibly, but I'd say depending on what metrics they have, it's probably a waste of time. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can't I can't judge the questionnaires I don't see, but I'd be very, very careful to answer. And when I first started, I actually shared an office with someone who was very heavily into, uh, she did a PhD in relationship quality and service quality measurement. So I actually got exposed to a lot of those instruments and was involved in projects measuring them and learned a lot from her as well. And so I know the vagaries and the difficulties and the challenges that come into that. And they are different to how you do that versus when you're measuring memories in people's heads about brands that are leading into what people think of in buying situations. So one of them is post-interaction and the other is pre-interaction. And I don't think the same instrument can do both. Yeah, good point. So when you would basically try to uh, summarize uh, your, your your message so what what's going wrong with brand tracking today and how should it be better done well i think a lot of brand trackers are not fit for purpose in that they were designed for an era where the loyal heavy buyer was the person we were most interested in But we know that from how brands grow that, yeah, it's not that they're unimportant, but that's not where growth comes from. So we need trackers that allow for that. We need measures that don't bias against people who have low latent memories giving, sharing those memories. Because remember, your brand's non-buyers are buyers of another brand. And so if you have a measure that people can only give one response to, Of course, the brand they use is going to get a have a greater chance than a brand they don't use has. So we need to design measures that allow for that and who it is we are. So, so when you look at it through a laws of growth lens, it changes who you survey, how you ask questions, how you report metrics. It basically shakes up the entire stream of brand health tracking. So first, you need to filter and select the category buyers, right? And not not be too narrow, right? But then how, how I measure better, is it, do I need to use implicit association test or, or what? what's what's better? 
yeah so um, more more um, more sciency is not necessarily better and I do talk about different sorts of measures in there so it's very hard to say because there are different dimensions of measurement um, and so I do put the case forward for you know what sort of brand awareness measures what brand attributes to track how you measure them how you analyze that brand attitude measures word of mouth measures how you get a record of people's exposure to marketing activities yeah, and importantly, of course, category and brand usage. And they will all vary depending on, so some of them will vary depending on brand size. Some of them will vary depending on the category you're in. So category and brand usage buying metrics are going to be different for an insurance company versus you know, a snack food brand. But they're all dealt with in there as much as possible. So it's really about going through and working out First of all, for your category, what do you want to track? And then for your brand, what do you want to extract as the key metrics at that time? And that can vary based on said size. It can vary based on what sort of marketing activity you're doing. So if you're engaging with a buzz campaign that you want to stimulate word of mouth, then word of mouth metrics are going to be more important to you. But if you're not doing that and you're a category like, say, toilet tissue that doesn't get a lot of conversation, then maybe you don't need word of mouth metrics in there. So, you know, so there's going to be some variation of what sort of metrics there are for your category, but how you measure them once you've chosen that metrics that often stays the same. So it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle of how you put it together. So you're, you're changing the different metrics depending on what what's your action portfolio is. Yeah, I mean, I think of it more like um, horses for courses. So, you know, you do horse racing and you have horses that work well in, in rainy um, when the track is muddy and you have ones that work better when it's uh, dry ones that work better over long distances and one that work better over short distances. You know, actually working out what are the key metrics because because when it comes to brand health metrics, what happens right now is we've got two, one of two extremes usually happening. Either you have this giant dashboard where people just measure everything and hope for the best, kind of lucky dip one where you, yeah, I'm measuring all of these and, oh, that one went up. That's the important metric, this wave. And then the other extreme is when people go, no, no, there's just one metric. That's the only metric I'm going to focus on. Really, we, we can be more sophisticated about that. It's somewhere in between. You can have a dashboard of metrics, but you don't necessarily have to consult them all, all the time for all brands because there are different ones that will move depending on your size and the marketing activities that you did. Now, having said that, there is still more work we need to do to properly understand that. So, for example, you know, if you're if you have a so in packaged goods categories, it's pretty normal to have a high amount of price promotion activity. So you might have, say, you know, 70% standard price promotion sold on deal. Now imagine you do a, a deep promotion and that goes up to 90%, you know, for, because you do a deep you know, deal for the retailer that time. So the question is, what happens to people's memory structures when you do that? And those are things we still need to do some more work on researching. But if we start asking smart questions, then that forces people to, encourages people to go and actually work that, those sorts of things out. So your next book will be on the relationship of branding and pricing and promotion? <laughs> Not necessarily. No, pricing research is fascinating. I love it. I mean, I because we do seminars on a range of topics. And when I had to do a seminar on pricing, I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. And then you read out my long list of 
things I dabble in. I'm like, no, no more hobbies. I've got enough. I don't need any more. So I rely on, we have some very smart people who do pricing research and I rely on them and their insights uh, rather than me. But it's just an example to me where I go, well, you know, I can think about what should happen because you know, we know price promotions, for example, don't attract new customers. They they attract what's basically called portfolio shuffling. So they bring in like buyers to buy now, but then they replace it. So someone who might have bought in three months' time buys now because you had it on promotion. And then in three months' time, they buy the brand they would have bought now if you hadn't been on promotion. So it doesn't grow, it doesn't cause a brand to grow, but it you that's why you get a spike in sales. So from my perspective, I go, okay, so what does that do to memories at that time? And I've seen some examples of that, of some heavy price promotions and that feeding into changing how people's memories are. But I just think we need a little bit more understanding of it. Is it a general lift across the board? Is it concentrated in pricing-based attributes? Is there something that the recognition you bought that on deal changes a specific mental structure or is it just a general raising a mental availability because you've just bought the brand that i don't know um, but hopefully someone or i will find out so you mentioned that established for established brand price promotions basically do not attract new buyers so how is it for new or smaller brands who want to grow and attract more is it a good instrument to do that yeah the, the evidence there is is Yeah, the evidence there is pretty slim because basically if you give it to people at a if you if you have to discount to trial, you're basically setting a lower reference price for people. So then they come back and they go, Oh, it's more expensive. I'm not so sure. Yeah. So you basically, you know, there's the evidence that that actually works, that it's necessary for a brand, a new brand is is very, very limited. Yeah. Yeah. So the the work on price promotions, particularly in packaged goods, was done by Andrew Ehrenberg and being replicated multiple times. And then when we've looked at new brands and what happens is they tend to look like existing brands pretty quickly. The idea that they kind of, we have a sort of settling in period kind of thing doesn't really seem to matter. They tend to ex attract a lot more light buyers than they should. And that's because the new buyers, the new, the buyers of a new brand tend to be heavy category buyers and heavy category buyers, they're more likely to put it in their entourage rather than the sort of main brand they buy. So that means it's a long time before they come back to it, if they come back to it, because if you don't keep advertising to them and reminding them that this was a brand that you tried, then they can easily forget it and go back to the existing repertoire they had. So we've done a lot of work understanding what happens with new brands and um, the idea that price promotions can factor into that. Yeah, don't know. I've not seen any convincing evidence that that is a necessary condition and there's a lot of reasons why it would be a dangerous strategy to start out with. But having said that, the reason you might do it is because the retailer wants you to, so I'm talking about packaged goods here in particular, that you have to offer some form of discount, otherwise the retailer won't give you shelf space. And in that case, it might be a necessary evil you have to do in order to, because if you don't have shelf space, then definitely no one's going to buy it if you don't have the physical availability. Yeah. So, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of things to weigh up there. But the idea that consumers need a financial inducement to buy a new brand, if they really do need that, maybe your pricing strategy is wrong. One idea where you say, hey, our product is so good. If someone want, once tried it, they have a new willingness to pay. And for this certain situation, you need to be sure that this is the case, right? For this situation, 
Not to an old. Now, usually what happens is people go, oh, I got it for three bucks. Cool. That's what I'll pay for it. What, you want to now charge me five bucks? Oh, but you charged me three bucks last time. I'll wait till you go on discount again and then buy it at three bucks. You set people's reference prices. And one of the things that we do know from some research that was done is one of the greatest, the biggest predictors of how many consumers buy on promotion is, somewhat unsurprisingly, how many price promotions brands offer in the category. So if you're a heavily promoted category, guess what? Lots of people buy it when it's promoted. If you don't promote as much, fewer people buy it when it's promoted. Great insight. Jenny, you talk a lot about these corporate brand trackers. How about smaller brands? And from my perspective, yeah, even most brands in packaged goods are small, mid-sized companies. And oftentimes they don't even afford brand trackers. So how, how should they manage brand health? Yeah. Well, I mean, so this is part of doing this is going, okay, if you don't have a brand tracker and you want one, here's a simple way to put one together. And on my website, book website, I've actually got a word version of a questionnaire that someone can download and fill in. And it's not that complicated and not that expensive nowadays, given you know how much it costs for online panels, et cetera, to get samples. Also, the analysis is relatively easy. Everything can be done in a basic statistic package and Excel. If you're good at Excel, you can do most of the things you need for a brand health tracker to get the metrics out. It doesn't have to be really complex, black box, lots of statistics involved. It just requires answer, asking the right questions in the right way. And if you do that, then the answer can be actually quite simple. It can be a, the right frequency. So it's designed for if you've got a brand health tracker and you kind of go, oh, I pretty much like it but I want to improve it, there'll be some tips in terms of attribute wording, questionnaire, uh, how questions are worded, how you analyze data that should be helpful for you. If you have a brand health tracker that you hate and you want to revamp it, then there's opportunities to do that. If you don't have a brand health tracker and you're thinking about it, then it does provide a relatively straightforward easy way to get an assessment of what's going on in people's brains. So, you know, so I think that it's... it's ubiquitous enough activity that most people can do it right you, you just need to do it be practical about it dare it do it it's not so expensive right and uh, everyone can do it no i mean it doesn't have to be complicated to be right that's the thing about it is that often we make it super complicated we create these you know metrics of this times this divided by this and we you know and these these sorts of really complex things but probably the most complex thing i'm proposing is the how we measure mental availability and even that when you actually go down into the numbers it said we calculate it in excel it doesn't need anything more complicated than that to be able to get the numbers out it's a, a bit of adding things together and then taking some means and frequencies and you get it so yeah you have to have some basic statistics and mathematical knowledge but you don't need to be a statistician or a mathematician to be able to get these metrics out you know they can be quite clear and easy to work with good news jenny apart from what we discussed today what are what will readers learn in better brand health uh, what are the key other things they they could already looking forward to when reading the book well i, I mean i think there's there's, so so it's not, I mean, is it, there's some measures like mental availability that maybe people will not be familiar with. But there's a lot of measures that people will be familiar with, like, for example, brand awareness, 
word of mouth, brand attributes, you know, how you put a brand attribute list together, how you put together a brand list to measure brand attributes, how you measure the brand attribute relationship because there are different ways put forward to that. So basically, hopefully it will allow people to look at probably what is in their tracker because most of the metrics I've chosen are pretty much in all brand health trackers. So they're commonly used and actually work out, ah, either, oh, that's why we're doing it that way or maybe we need to rethink and change that and focus on different things. Um, Probably what I I sort of leave people teasing on without explaining why, but, you know, at the end of the book, you should be rethinking anything you're measuring top of mind, top of mind awareness, top of mind brand associations, anything you're measuring where you're taking unprompted the first brand that comes to mind because there's very good arguments as to why that's a really poor measurement. So that's a teaser for your readers, (laughs) of your listeners, sorry, podcast. This re- reminds me to when when we measure when we ask an open ended questions in in, in NPS surveys, what people are saying. Uh, typically, you would think the most often mentioned things are the topics they have, but uh, although important topics, but that's just most important mentioned. It's not most important ones. So there's that's you can prove that very well. So that there is. Uh, Obviously, something similar in, in brand research. I'm looking forward to to reading that. Need to wait a few more days, and uh... <laughs> hopefully, be there soon. Yes, yeah, so it's been challenging with the physical availability side, but hopefully, we're there now. It's available on Amazon in the US and in Europe, and put, book depository in about 30 countries. So wonderful. Thank you very much, Jenny, for enlightening us today. It was was uh, very interesting. And wish you best of luck with your book. And I'm looking forward to your book uh, on pricing in maybe 10 years or so. <laughs> oh, I think there's a few other topics I'll, I'll tackle before that. I might leave the pricing research to the pricing experts. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you might be waiting a really long time for that one. Thank you. It was great. Thanks for being in the show. Have a great day. Bye.